In this episode of 9-2-I Talks, award-winning producer and writer Richie Jackson and Netflix's Queer Eye star Antony Porofsky discuss Jackson's new book, Gay Like Me, A Father Writes to His Son, with an introduction by Jordan Roth. Jackson reflects on his life as a gay man and compares it to the world his 18-year-old gay son is growing up in now. Being gay is a gift, Jackson says, but with its gains in jeopardy, the gay community must not be complacent. The conversation was recorded on January 29th, 2020, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. I'm really, really, really excited to introduce tonight's speakers, who I am especially fond of. <laughs> First, our moderator, the New York Times best-selling author and Emmy Award-winning star of the Netflix hit series Queer Eye. As the show's food and wine expert, he brings a lifelong passion for food that has influenced his culinary philosophy. Food should tell a story. And the heart and the stomach are interconnected. A self-taught cook with a degree in psychology, he has built his career on the view that food has the power to connect and inspire. He has brought this philosophy to the Village Den, the Manhattan eatery where he is part owner. How many people have been to the Village Den? Okay, very good. Um, making familiar food done healthy. His cookbook, Anthony in the Kitchen, was number two on the New York Times bestseller list. Yes. And of course, Queer Eye won Emmy Awards for Outstanding Structured Reality Program and Outstanding Casting for a Reality Program two consecutive years running. Thank you very much. He and his fellow Fab Five were listed among Entertainment Weekly's Entertainers of the Year in 2018. He was a finalist for People's Choice Reality TV Star of 2019 and winner of Eater's 2018 hashtag Brand of the Year. And yes, he is People Magazine's 2019 Reader's Choice for Sexiest Reality Star. And you will soon see why. <laughs> now, speaking of sexy, <laughs> our featured guest is my husband. <laughs> he is the Tony-nominated producer of Torch Song on Broadway and the Emmy and Golden Globe Award-nominated producer of Nurse Jackie on television. And just yesterday, HarperCollins published his first book, Gay Like Me, A Father Writes to His Son. <laughs> Chosen by Town and Country as one of the most anticipated books of the year and named an LGBTQ book that'll change the literary landscape by O, oh, the Oprah magazine. And today's Oprah's birthday, so that makes it totally true. Every reason that I love this man is on every page of this book. My husband and I have always said that raising children together is the most romantic thing you can do. To hold your beloved's hand while guiding your child with the other. To watch one another generate deeper and deeper devotion to the family you are building together, to multiply love. 
Whenever either of our sons do something amazing, which is literally all the time, we joke to each other, that's some good gay parenting. <laughs> well, my husband has taken good gay parenting to the highest heights by not only living it, but by putting it down on paper as an offering. A gift of his heart to our son and to all of us. To say to anyone, this is who I am, is a blessing. To say it to your child is a miracle. It is an act of profound generosity, of inspiring bravery, and of breathtaking love. Please welcome my husband, Richie Jackson, and Anthony Porofsky. We were so cool and ready to come up, and then that happened. Oh and, my God. Uh, this is like my gay bar mitzvah. <laughs> wow. This is nothing like my first communion. <laughs> <sighs> Welcome, everyone. Um, so I'd like, how, how are you? I'm great. <laughs> um, I would like to. Um, I would like to start with my book report, if that's okay. It's very short. I clocked it at about a minute and a half. I'm not gonna take too much time, but I would like to read this because I have some notes on the book before we get into things, and I really wanna hear you speak. Um, so, Gay Like Me is as much tough as it is love. The book is an intimate look into the type of family I wish I knew existed hmm, when I was growing up and the intergenerational conversations that come with it. In one passage, Richie's son states, and I'm paraphrasing here, that being gay isn't a big deal, a sentiment which I sympathize with. Maybe it's because I can see my own attitudes in Richie's son and other parts of the book that made me rather uncomfortable, actually, as I was reading. So uncomfortable that when we met, um, I kind of wanted to back out of this. Um, <laughs> because a lot of what you actually mention in your book um, really casts a spotlight. Um, on my privilege. And as my therapist would say, if it's hysterical, it's historical. Richie's message reminded me of my relationship with my dad. As the son of Holocaust survivors and a Polish immigrant, he sent me to Polish school every Saturday of my youth so that I would learn about where I came from. I knew that Poles kept their language, religion, and traditions for the 400 years they weren't on the map, occupied by other countries, before I could even read or write. True story. At home or when with family, I was only allowed to speak Polish. From my grandfathers, both Polish Catholics, I learned to finish my entire plate at dinner, especially the bread and potatoes, because that was all they were given to eat by Nazis for over two years that they were held captive in concentration camps. Being Polish isn't a big deal, I would say. At times in my youth, I was embarrassed of my heritage, even contemplating to change my name to sound more American, and I'm really glad I didn't. Today, I'm grateful for my father's, at times, aggressive Polishness. 
thanks to him, I have an understanding of my heritage. I'm confident. Well, it's not fully true. I'm confident about some things, but not about everything. Um, and I understand the importance of being proud of who I am. When it comes to being LGBTQ+, I've realized in recent years that those same answers have been more difficult to find. This book is aggressive, in my humble Canadian opinion, but necessarily so. For marginalized populations like ours, sometimes we need to swing the pendulum to the other end before it makes its way back to the center. And with that, I think we should start. Amazing. Okay. Let's start at the beginning of the book. Okay. I think it's the, it's the first page. You wrote, I've always felt lucky to be gay. I've known since the third grade that I was gay, and even then, it made me feel special, unique, and chosen. I think that that's a very rare perspective to have, especially for, for somebody that's so young. I'm still not fully there. Um, how did you come to think of it that way? Uh, I think partly it was because I grew up in a home where my parents never said anything negative about any group of people. I never heard those loaded words that would make me feel bad about myself. My mother is right there. Uh, so I grew up with parents who made me feel worthy. Uh, and I also grew up in a town that felt like everybody was the same. I went to public schools that were primarily all Jewish. Uh, we all did Hebrew school. We all did Little League. And it all felt stifling to me. And I, I felt so lucky to have a secret that made me different, that made me special. I always have felt special because I was gay. I have never wanted to be like everybody else. I've never wanted to be anything that I wasn't. And in the third grade, I struggled with reading. I couldn't read. And I had a lot of extra help, and I remember having a ruler where I had to put it under a line and make sure I only saw the words in that line. And I said, well, I can't read like everybody else in this class, and I cannot do math, but I like boys. <laughs> <laughs> and how lucky is that? <laughs> how old were you when you came out to your parents? So, uh, well, my mother... Uh, tried to have me uh, come out when I was 16. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> How'd it go? She's a, she's a very good Jewish mother. <laughs> so uh, when I was 16, I had not told my parents uh, that I was gay. I had not told anybody. And my mother came home from seeing a Broadway play in the city and said, I just saw this unbelievable play with this incredible actor who's also the playwright. And on my way out, we, I bought tickets to take you. We never saw shows we've seen before, and we never bought tickets at the box office. So I knew it was a big deal. And I said, well, what is it about? And she said, homosexuality. And I was like, oh. Did she have a little glimmer in her eye when she said it? <laughs> She's so mischievous. <laughs> she took me to see Harvey Firestein in Torch Song Trilogy. And 
the character Arnold that he played was the very first gay man I ever came in contact with. And it was this extraordinary afternoon where Arnold wanted the same things I knew I wanted. All my life, I, I only had two goals, to be a father and to love someone. That's all I've ever wanted, and that's what Arnold wanted. So I was mesmerized, and then at the end of the play, the mother and Arnold have a fight, and the mother says, if I had known you'd be gay, I wouldn't have had you. And my mother takes me to dinner after the show and said, you know if you ever came home and said you were gay, I would never react like the mother in that play. Nobody was talking to my Long Island mother in 1982 about gay people. She had no gay friends, no gay coworkers. It was her own humanity that had her take me to theater and use a play as a crystal ball to show me my future. It was a lifeline. I didn't come out to her then, but I knew I was safe with her. And then about two years later, at Passover, <laughs> she said, when are you going to tell me you're gay? So you actually say in your book um, that you think being gay is better than being straight. I'm not alone. Right? <laughs> it is better. I mean, <laughs> LGBTQ people are 4.5% of the population. That's it. 4.5%. That's not a defect. That's not worthless. That's chosen. We get to see the world differently. We get to feel differently. We get to think differently. I think that is extraordinarily lucky to be able to be different than almost everybody else. I think that's better. And we get to be part of a vibrant, creative, mischievous, fabulous uh, community. I'll agree with mischievous. Um, the very first line of your book is, the single dream and drive of my life has always been to be a father. Well, I mean, I kind of know this, knowing what I know about your parents and how you were raised, but where did this desire come from, and how did you know so early? The only thing that has ever felt vital to me is parenting. I, I, nothing I ever tried on or dreamed about or like I would play being a, uh, a doctor or being a lawyer or being a businessman, all these make-believe things, the most alive I felt was always when I thought, oh, I, I want to be a parent. That, to me, made me feel vital. And uh, it used the best parts of me. My potential always was better realized as a parent. And I wanted to matter. And when you're a parent, uh, you matter. And I also have always wanted responsibility. That, in, in my whole life, responsibility was always what I wanted to find, and parenting satisfied that. I think I've only been developing the need, or sort of like the desire, or the hope, or the wish to be a parent later in my life, because 
such a lack in representation that I didn't have people who I saw out there who were doing that, or actually didn't think it was something that was really possible. Right. Well, you know, and also my parents are pretty like dis dysfunctional, so <laughs> I think that kind of helped. Well, I do think I. They're not. I mean, good. I have a lot of friends who are parents who pause before they do something and say, "Okay, how would my parents do this? I'm going to do it a different way." Right. So you don't have to repeat all the. Or you think you're doing things differently, and then you realize you do things exactly the same way. Yeah, and there's not some to make it comfort about me again, to that too. Yeah, fair. Um, so, your son came out to you in Jordan when he was 15. What was your reaction? I was elated. I, <laughs> I, my greatest wish was for him to be gay. I wanted him to be gay. When we were expecting, I kept saying, oh, I, I want a gay child, I hope he's gay. Uh, and uh, then he said, uh, Daddy, being gay is not a big deal. My generation doesn't think it's a big deal. And I thought, oh no, being gay is a really big deal. And it's the most important thing about me. It's the best thing about me. And I, I didn't want him to be one of these people who grew up and said, gay doesn't define me. I just happened to be gay. If he made it matter of fact, if he diminished it, he would demean this gift that it is and not take full advantage of it. So I started to think about what I had to share with him about what it means to be a gay man. And then Donald Trump was elected. Just as he was leaving our home for the first time, he's going out into the world as a gay adult, and now I had to warn him what it takes to be a gay man in America, and that's how the idea for the book came. Has his point of view shifted at all? No. But I will say that's more about who he is than the actual issue at hand. Gotcha. Understood. Would you have been disappointed if he weren't gay? He says I would have been disappointed. <laughs> uh -huh. But, you know, the real disappointment would be if I wanted him to be nothing like me. How can you parent with any self-esteem if every day you're praying, please don't be like me, please don't be like me? That w I couldn't parent like that. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Um, you write that it requires double vision to be gay. What do you mean by that? So I think all of us who are gay know this idea that you have double vision and you have it all day long. In one view, you have to keep clear-eyed about how America sees you, how America treats you, how they are marginalizing you, how in danger you can be. But in the other view, you have to keep your beautiful gayness, your clarity about your potential, your Im imagination, your, your gayness has to not be spoiled by the vision of America. You have to keep them separate and hold them at the same time. And you cannot let how America treats you spoil the way you feel about yourself as a gay person. Mm. Um, there's a chapter titled, Otherness is a Leg Up to Extraordinary, and you write, the way to deal with your otherness is not to soften the edges, not to find the ways to fit in or to pass. It is to double down, to exploit, and to expose all those parts of you that are other. God, I wish I heard that when I was a kid. 
what is the power of otherness and how do you find that? And are you still other? Yeah, I, I, I'm definitely other. At 54 years old, I am other and I have a 2020 double vision. But I, I think otherness is our superpower. That is what makes us so special. And everybody has something they love about themselves, something in them that they know they like best. And you have to hit the gas on it. You have to have faith in it. Otherness is your way of, your special way of seeing the world, your special way of making sense of things. It's where your creativity is. It's where your hunger is. It's how you love. And otherness sets you apart. And it's that being set apart, not being like everybody else, not being the same, is such potential. Mm -hmm. You can get so much out of that if you don't scrub it off, if you don't soften the edges, if you don't do all the things to fit in, to go along, to get along. Yeah, it's like knowing that it's, like, that it's an asset, not a liability. It's a superpower. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Big Marvel fan. Anyway. Um, so you say that you are other. You think being gay is a gift. Yet there are people out there, let's say a friend of mine who is not me, um, who would look at your life, married with two children, and say that you have a heteronormative life. What do you say to those people? I, I think you could think my life is heteronormative if you think straight people own parenting and marriage. I don't believe that. You know, if they want to own something, they can own the NFL. They can't have, <laughs> they can't have marriage and parenting. So your son moved out, and he's... Ugh, why well, I got to bring that up? And he's in uni. So painful. But he's close. He's not at breakfast and dinner every night. That's not close. Who's cooking for him? He, seamless is... Oh. <laughs> I, and I only know because it's on my credit card. So I get all the alerts when his deliveries are being made. That's amazing. It's a lot of pokey not a bad choice. <laughs> Just don't have too much tuna because they're really big and there's, mer anyway. Mercury, yeah. um, Do you think it'll be easier for him than it was for you? To be gay? Just being in, being gay, but just like being in college and his experience no, and what that sort of. It's totally gonna be harder than it was when I, uh, I moved to New York in 1983 when I was 17. Oh. And so now he's going to NYU and that's where I moved, and I think it will definitely be harder for him as a gay man than it was for me. Uh, when I came out, we were, as Harvey Firestein described, the great, chic, mysterious underground. We were invisible, fighting for some uh, table scraps of um, visibility, and there were no laws protecting us. There were no out public officials. There were no out TV stars. There was no visibility. Everything we wanted was a pipe dream and a nightmare to our adversaries. Now, we got a lot of what we didn't imagine mm -hmm. could happen. And our adversaries have seen us achieve it. They're dismantling it, they're taking it away, and they will do everything they can not to let us have it back. So I believe 
my son's generation of LGBTQ people are going to have it much harder than we did. Does your son think he has it harder? I think he's aware uh, from all the conversations we have at the dinner table about the climate that we're all living under. The Trump administration has declared war on the LGBTQ community. Mm -hmm. He went to Washington with Mike Pence, Betsy DeVos, and Jeff Sessions, all more of an imminent threat to our son than ISIS in North Korea. So yeah, things could be much worse. Um, hmm. What's your main concern for the future of the LGBTQ community? Well, one concern is how complacent we are. I mean, the rainbows and the hashtag love is love, I think, have lulled us into this idea that we're better off, that everything's great, that there's acceptance and visibility. And I think that is just the veneer. And I'm worried about us all, the activism that my generation had that rose up and formed to fight AIDS, we are in a similar battle and we need to galvanize. I mean, there is an epidemic of transgender women being murdered. And instead of a parade down Fifth Avenue, we should be putting targets on our back and marching to Washington. Uh, you know, I worry that there's not the activism. I also worry that these younger people who say they don't want to define themselves. You know, I met a, uh, parents the other day and they said, oh, my son and daughter, they're not gay or straight. They say they're open. And I think open and fluid and all the words people use are great to describe feelings. But where is the word that means us? When are they going to join the battle to fight for our community? Because the not defining yourself cannot be an escape hatch to join in. You don't think that referring to oneself as fluid can be defining? No, I'm saying it's defining personally. Gotcha. But you have to also define yourself as a, as a responsible member right. of the LGBTQ right. community. The other worry I have is what happens when we do get our liberation? What happens when we win and we have our freedom? We cannot get to a point where we say, okay, we're free, everything's great, now being gay is not a big deal. That's not winning. You know, we have not gone through everything we've gone through to be free to then diminish ourselves. Mm -hmm. To me, that's not freedom. LGBTQ people are marvels. We disappoint our parents. <laughs> We're at battle with our government. We're stigmatized by religions. We're bullied in our childhoods. We're erased in our classrooms. We have survived the plague and still we rise, we come out, and we say, this is me. That is the spirit of an extraordinary species of people. We need to celebrate that and not diminish it. And we battle ourselves unnecessarily sometimes, too.
struck by this line. I brought it up to my therapist today, actually. <laughs> we should have uh, brought your therapist. my second therapist reference. I <laughs> know. We were angry. How can you be gay without anger? You also say to your son, I have to get you angry. Are you still angry, and Hell why? Yeah, I'm angry. Yes, I'm angry. Some of it's residual and left over, and some of it's new. Uh, look, we have a lot to be angry about. There are 41 anti-LGBTQ hate groups in America. There are over 100 anti-LGBT bills in state legislatures, 34 states in all. There are 28 states you can be fired in for being gay or for your gender identity. We're not educating our LGBTQ youth. They're not taught about their history. Mm -hmm. Less than 7% of our uh, kids are getting inclusive sex ed. They're erased in the classroom. We're not teaching them how to take care of themselves or their partners. That makes me angry. The other thing that makes me angry is the, the little insidious things that happen to us every day. Like, every gay person knows on your first date, you actually talk about whether your family accepts you as a person. That makes mm. me angry. We, we watch magazine and news shows where it's acceptable opinion to think we're not people. Right. That makes me angry. So there's a lot to be angry about. And I think if you don't have that anger, then you're just getting, you're just thinking everything's okay. You're just living with these little indignities every day. I don't want to live with the indignities. There's a famous um, civil rights line uh, from the 60s, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I should talk to your therapist about my anger. She's fantastic. <laughs> because I don't manifest anger. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's your hard. therapist can call in. Do they do call in here? She don't want Carol's busy. <laughs> <laughs> There's her name. <laughs> Might as well give my address. I, I recommend. <laughs> <laughs> I read that you describe your book as a love letter to being gay a love letter to parenting, and a love letter to being in love. It is clear how central you have made love to your life. And in fact, you write, I've had only two goals in my life, to be a father and to love someone. You, you really write, write so movingly about Jordan and your relationship. Gay Like Me isn't a relationship book, but in some ways it is. Can you identify why you and Jordan work so well how the fuck well, do you do it? Did you see him? I mean, it's not that hard. Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think uh, when I met Jordan, I, it, well, first of all, it's the gayest story how we met. Uh, it was at the Tony Awards. <laughs> One of us was with Harvey Firestein. The other was with his mother. <laughs> so I got up and introduced myself at a commercial break, which 
by the way, you can't do at the Tony Awards. I think it's like anti-gay. They don't let the gay guys get up and meet anymore. During the commercials, they give out awards. There's like a whole group of people not meeting at the Tony Awards. <laughs> so Jordan and I had lunch the first time, and I, I knew what he needed was to be heard, to be listened to. And I think what Jordan and I do for each other is we don't love each other in a general way. We are, it's not like I'm relationship Richie and he's being Jordan relationship, relationship Jordan. We love each other the way each of us needs to be loved. It's very specific. And when you do that for someone, you heal them. And that has, what, that has been the sustainable part of our love. It's always growing because we are, we are very specific about making sure we're loving each other uh, the way we need it. What's your love language? <laughs> I don't have to answer that, right? No, you don't. You could ask my therapist. Got it. Who, by the way, is a gay man. I'm just saying you should, you know, I'm just, I'm more comfortable, I'm more comfortable with women. I don't know that you should be comfortable with your therapist. I think that's the whole thing. <laughs> it's the, we'll talk I mean, about let's just say, therapy is horrible. It's not fun. I Why are you love, I love it, I've been doing that's it That's the problem. Yeah, no, see. But I'm also very not a indulgent hater, person. To really, what? Uh, I'm a very indulgent person. Like, I love to talk about things and my feelings. <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> I'm on dreams now because I have night terror. Anyway, um, <laughs> let's talk about sex. Um, can we right. talk about sex at the 92nd Street? Walk? I think we can. I think All right, you guys just remember, my mother's here. On it. Um, you write very candidly about your first sexual experiences and their lasting effects on you. How did you have the courage to disclose this, and why did you think it was so important? Uh... uh the first few people who read my book told me how brave it was. And I said to Jordan, what did I write that I shouldn't have written? Uh, you know, when you write a letter to your child, and I, I have to say, I recommend every parent write their child a letter before they um, head off. You don't have to have other people read it, but you should write it to your... To, um, that narrow lane of being a letter to our son made it so I had to be honest. I could not edit. I could not soften or smooth things out mm -hmm. because otherwise it would have been dishonest and it would have been worthless. My thing with our children is I don't want to seem fully formed. I don't ever want to seem like I have all the answers. I've always made it seem like I really struggle with things. There are things I'm not good at and things I need help with. And I talk about in the book the first three times that I had sex with men. The first time was I was 16 and uh, the guy was in college and we were dating. He would take me to the city for these incredible, I thought this was amazing. I saw movies and Broadway plays and I was like, this is dating. And then we would go back to his bedroom in Merrick, Long Island. Uh, <laughs> So that part's not so romantic, but, and literally we had, we 
fooled around, and before I, you know, sat up, he broke up with me, and he said, we shouldn't be doing this. The second guy I had sex with in college told me he was straight, and then leaned in and kissed me. And we had this feverish relationship, and then finally he said, I'm straight. I couldn't at 17 understand that his terror at his feelings didn't have anything to do with me. Mm -hmm. And then the third guy, you see how this is going, not so well. <laughs> the third guy I had sex with was a boyfriend and just after intercourse, he punched me. And he said, how could you do that? He was so angry for having enjoyed sex with a man. Mm -hmm. So I have forever been altered by these experiences. I didn't understand that sex is a tightrope. You have to allow yourself to be vulnerable enough to be intimate with someone, but also protect yourself to not take on their baggage. And what I say in the book and what I've said to our son is you're gonna go to college and hopefully have sex with young men and you, you will not know in their journey where they are. Mm -hmm. They might be in the closet, they may be self-loathing, they might have been bullied or abused, and so you have to take care with them because they're just young people yearning to feel whole. And I said, please be gentle with the young men you meet because I did not understand that, and I was uh, deeply uh, bruised by it. Being gay is fucking complex. It's, it's awesome, but it's really complex. No, it's harrowing. It can be harrowing. And I think what's important about that is, you know, I, I think when I, when I was growing up, I had this moment when I realized that my parents weren't these gods, that they weren't perfect, and I found out that they were flawed humans. And that was like such a it really sucked because it's sort of like I had to sort of like shift my perspective in how I treated them. So I think that that's incredibly one, helpful to... Right. If you knew your parents had flaws, you might be uh, more comfortable with your own flaws. Absolutely. Absolutely. So this was all happening in around the early 80s in 1983, a year before I was born. Um, <laughs> That wasn't, that wasn't meant to, we're not that. It wasn't meant to be, but. It just happened. Um, I had wanted Henry Kissinger to do this interview. It would have been, <laughs> well, you got me. Um, so this is all We're gonna do a drinking game. Every time I mention Henry Kissinger. A sip of water from the mug. Um, so this is all happening in 1983, right at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. What was New York City? like back then, and how was your sexual development affected? Yes, uh, it was uh, harrowing, to, it was horrible. Thank you. People would literally disappear. I remember going to lunch with a friend and he was telling me about Barry's funeral, Barry's funeral, and I said, wait a minute, Barry's sick? I mean, died? I didn't even know he was sick. Mm. When I got to New York in 1983, I think there were 800 cases and 1,600 deaths by then. A year later, my second year of college, those numbers had doubled. Uh, we were taught to uh, kiss with your mouth closed, to take a shower 
as foreplay, but really as a way to look at the guy's body for any lesions or uh, sores. We were taught not to floss before a date, not to shave before a date, because nobody knew if you know a freshly shaved cheek or, or you know could transmit the disease. Nobody knew how what was happening. We were taught to buy a fingernail uh, scrub brush to scrub under your fingernails with back, antibacterial soap after sex, and then. Um, this radical idea of wearing condoms. So I was trying to be intimate with men, yet we all saw each other as potential infectors. And, uh, you know, I have never had sex, never, even now, married, without the fleeting thought of death racing through my mind every time. And it has, I've, I have not recovered from being in New York in 1983 uh, in, in that way, being intimate with another person, trusting them uh, has been a lifelong um, challenge for me. And how's that conversation with your son, with PrEP, right. for example? So we've talked about condoms. Yeah. Uh, you know, I told him that when I was in college, uh, I would masturbate with a condom just to get used to it, just to get used to the feeling, so I, you know, I would um, be fine with it. I don't think he's going to have what I had because I always, like condom, lube, were always a signal, death, death, death. He won't have that. And we've talked about PrEP, which is a daily drug to prevent Sorry, yeah. HIV. And I said, when you become sexually active, you should talk to a doctor about whether you should go on it. That freedom is extraordinary to me. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't know how to be a gay man who didn't know someone who died of AIDS. When I was 22, I went to a funeral every weekend. Before 30, I had 20 friends who died. My college roommate died of AIDS. So to not have that is you know, extraordinary to me. Right. But I have said to him, even with PrEP, you have to wear a condom every time, every time, every time. My generation didn't know HIV was on our horizon. We had no idea. So Eve, PrEP only prevents HIV. We have no idea what else might come down the pike, mm -hmm. and I want to make sure that my son protects himself from the unknown. Yeah. And you know, PrEP is not uh, a, a party drug. It's not a gateway for, it cannot be used as a gateway for unsafe mm -hmm. sex. If Grindr were around when you were younger, <laughs> Grindr's an app. Do you th it's also weirdly the name of a restaurant that specializes in steak in Montreal, which, anyway. I think this is the first time Grindr has been mentioned at the 92nd Street Walk. I think, I think so too, but here we are. What a time to be alive. Um, if Grindr were around when you were younger, would you have been on it, and what do you think of hookup apps? Oh, voraciously, yes. I think so. <laughs> Uh, well, I, look, I think um, I, I told our son about street cruising. I said, you used to walk down the street. You wouldn't have your phone. There were no phones. Right. Your face wasn't in a phone. And you would pass a handsome guy, and then you would look back, and maybe he'd look back at you. And then you'd walk two steps. You'd look back, 
Hopefully, he'd look back again. And then you would start walking towards Sounds each like other. Sounds like an Animal Planet documentary almost. <laughs> there is a certain amount of animalistic. And then you'd go have sex. And I really am. Um, Wait, without saying anything? Well, I mean, there are pleasantries, oh, I'm okay. sure. <laughs> well, yes, you have to talk about which apartment. And, that's you know. fair, OK. But I'm sad he's not going to have that, that that's, it's just like on the phone. I think hookup apps are good in some ways. Like, I do think it's good not to meet people in places that are fueled by alcohol. Mm -hmm. But agreed. you cannot base your interest in somebody on profile stats, right. on how many abs they have, and how tall they are. And I think you know some of these app have, apps have the same, our community, same bias and prejudices that the Village Voice personal ads had when I was growing up. You know, no fats, no femmes, no Asians, straight acting, mm -hmm. all that horrible prejudice right. uh, is in these apps. Uh, so I think that's dangerous. And like the romance when you're single of like going to a place and being like, am I going to meet someone today? And even if you don't, it's just there's something still exciting in that. Yeah, one of the problems is we have no gay places anymore. You know, there are more gay-friendly places than mm -hmm. gay places. So, you know, when I was new to New York, you'd go to a gay bar or, uh, you know, a, a gay, you know, like Fire Island or, Long, uh, Fire Island or Provincetown, and it would be all gay people and you could possibly meet somebody. It's harder now, I think, that way. Should I open up a gay bar? Oh my god, yes. Okay. Well, how, you know what, I think we should open. I think uh, places that don't involve drugs and alcohol would be great for gay people. Like a, a, a Village Den, 225 West 12th Street, open 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. seven days a week. Um, I think straight readers will be surprised, but gay readers will recognize you're describing how coming out is every day. Yes. It's, uh, I think every gay person knows you come out constantly, and you have to think about coming out. You know, Jordan and I come out at every, every parent meeting, every school. Every, we have a code that we send with our kids. You know, daddy means Jordan, dada means me. You have to uh, come out to doctors and to your whether you come out at work, there are constant, constant decisions about coming out. And that's why every gay person has a gay guard. Mm -hmm. This knowledge of when it's safe to come out, when it's not. And that was also the reason I wrote the book, is that our son has no gay guard. He doesn't know the vigilance it takes. So, you know, I want to be out all the time and I want to uh, talk about being gay all the time, but there are times that it's not safe. Mm -hmm. Gotta skip around, because we're almost at the end. Um, I know. Um, <laughs> I have to pick between my faves. Wait, okay. All right. Um, I really want to get to the audience questions. Um, what's one thing you want readers to take away from your book? Like, what's your, what's your goal? Well, my son's single. <laughs> Uh, you're available. Uh, um, I want the big takeaway is being gay is a gift. It is a gift, and if and uh, I want to change the way we talk 
and think about LGBTQ people. Being gay is a gift. We have been gifted. We have been chosen. And that requires our participation in making that gift a reality. Thank you. Okay. Ugh, oh, I love good handwriting. Okay. Um, you wrote your name, so I'm going to say it. I hope that's okay. Michael Hiller had a question. Um, I assume you know who that is. I do. One of my best friends in high school came out freshman year in college. What advice would you give to people to support their friends and family as they come to understand their sexuality? Uh, so Michael Hiller was my best friend in high school. Ah. He's also a uh, fierce advocate for New York City and uh, for marginalized and powerless people. So we have a, uh, a real fighter in him. I, uh, you know, I think the way to be an ally is to be an advocate, not just an ally. And to, um, to not, I, I really wish that all the people I said I was gay to didn't say, Oh, it doesn't matter. Oh, I don't care. It's no big deal. I was like, it's the biggest deal in the world. How could you minimalize it? And it was only out of love and support that they wanted to do that. Oh, there you are. Hi. Um, but I think when someone comes out to you, you should celebrate it. You should be excited for them and never say, oh, it's no big deal. It doesn't matter. And then I think we need advocates. We need people to make our issues central to the way they vote, to the way they um, question candidates, because our lives depend on it. Mm. Question. I totally wasn't paying attention when they told me three times yesterday. What time do we have to? I didn't listen. We have a little bit. We're, we're good, right? You guys want to Yeah, we're good. Home? We're good. We're fine. Um, all right. So Anonymous asks, I'm in call. I'm in college, and last spring I came out to myself. During the summer, I came out to my family. Unfortunately, my mom reacted negatively. We're better now. But my dad was supportive. He'd never had any real interaction with gay people that he knew of. Sorry, I added that part myself. <laughs> Yet he gave me nothing but unconditional love. These past few months, I've realized how lucky I am. How do I thank my dad? Oh my god. Uh, I think you thank your dad by living your living fully and unapologetically. And uh, I think parents are most proud when their children become fully themselves. And I think you're being yourself and you're doing that. I think that's thank you enough. And I would say about uh, your mother who didn't react uh, as you would have hoped, sometimes people's first reaction isn't their last reaction. That could change, and uh, it happened for me with my uh, father. So uh, I would also give that um, time, and, and I think living your life and being yourself, I think you will see her move towards you too. And from Omar, I apologize if I butcher your name, from Omar Gonzalez Pagan. Today, the South Dakota House of Representatives passed a bill criminalizing gender-affirming care for trans youth. 
what would you tell trans youth who are under attack today? You are beautiful. You are worthy. Uh, I would. I would say do not listen to this White House. We love you and we can't wait to meet you. And I think uh, all of us, these bad bills, these hateful, violent bills in state legislatures are all our fights. It's our responsibility. LGBTQ, or it's not just stripes on a flag so that everybody feels represented. Our, we rise and fall together. And so that fight is our fight. The Tennessee fight about um, where they're not, they're, they're gonna allow adoption agencies and foster care system to discriminate that's against right, LGBTQ, right. but that's our fight too. Um, I'm allowed to ask all the questions, which is great. Um, what advice do you have for someone who didn't get the love he needed from his family, but finds it hard to find a deep connection in a gay community that feels too quick to superficially sexualize? Patrick, who's 25. Uh, you know, I, I think it's very difficult to find your chosen family, but you can do it, and when you have that group of uh, LGBTQ friends who can be your family and can support you and be with you in all those holidays, uh, it's really extraordinary. It's hard to find. But I wouldn't look for it at, on the apps, and I wouldn't look for it in the bars, and right. I wouldn't look for it in the places that are sexualized. I would go to where your interests are and think about, there are so many gay groups connected to everything. There's gay sports teams, mm -hmm. there's gay book clubs, there's gay you know, uh, movie clubs. You can find a group of like-minded people who share your interests. I would start there and get out of the sexualized drug um, and alcohol places and look for friends that based on your interests. I, I really want to know this one. Um, how do you and Jordan parent? What did you learn from experiences that surprised you about your parent parenting style? Beautiful cursive, by the way, anonymous. I, w I will tell you it's, a rom it's so romantic to parent with your spouse. And uh, Jordan and I sort of let our children lead us. We follow their interest and just sort of try to expand the runway for them. But uh, there have been times I, I remember saying to Jackson when he was really young, uh, he was sobbing and crying. He was three. And I said, what is wrong with you? And he said, nothing's wrong with me. And I thought, oh, he's absolutely right. That was like the worst possible thing to say. I haven't forgotten and I'm still. Uh, and we, we learn a lot from them. You know, Jackson taught us how to parent him. He, you, he would do this, um, he would self-soothe himself to go to bed. And I'd say, oh, don't do that. It was the, and he said, he was five, your job is to take care of me, not control me. <laughs> and then, I, when we used to say, okay, go brush your teeth, he'd say, tell me what needs to be done, not what to do. <laughs> Won't he be a great boyfriend? 
do you ever wonder what you'll think or say differently if your younger son identifies as straight? Why do you got to bring that up? It was a question. I didn't add, 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 ask um, it. You know, one of the things, uh, Jordan is amazing at parenting our children's hearts and uh, really giving them self-esteem about their feelings. I mean, can, if you had Jordan Roth as a parent, every feeling you had would be uh, supported and validated. And when that happens, you will be yourself because you won't edit out how you feel because your father gave you permission to feel everything. So we will support anything our children are and we parent them to believe in themselves, to have good self-esteem, try to raise them with empathy and resilience. Does Mayor Pete still have a chance? <laughs> Are you kidding me? I, I, let's turn the question. Does anybody else have a chance against Mayor Pete? There you go. <laughs> I appreciate a Mayor Pete question. Those are all the questions. Thank you. So I think you mentioned you wanted to read a little passage to right. conclude the evening. That would be great. I would love it. Please. So uh, it could be like a Seder. Please turn to, no. Uh, I end the book with my prayer for our son. Uh, it's called This Parent's Prayer but it's really a prayer for all our children, and I'd like to read it to you. I pray your life is full of love. I hope it includes activism. I expect you'll be of service. I hope, too, through your buoyant colors you wear daily, that your life will have a vibrancy, especially now while you are young, that mine did not. I hope you'll try. And if you fail, try some more. I wish you to be loved the way I am. I want you to know the glory is in the doing, not in any reward, financial gain, or accolade. I want you to aim high, because if you aim for the middle, you will find it. Take time to think there are no no-brainers. Crave responsibility. It is where the living is. Always want the ball. Be kind. Being kind is like warming up your voice before singing or stretching before an athletic activity. Being kind opens you up to be ready for anything. And being kind to people makes them feel valued. When you are ready for anything, and valuing the people around you, the possibilities of what you can achieve are endless. Don't look down on anyone unless it's to help pick them up. Strive to be curious, not just capable.
There is not a finite amount of success in the world. Be the student most likely to want everyone to succeed. In our loaded for bear world, where seemingly everyone has become a disciplinarian, teach, don't lecture. Guide, don't demean. Bolster, don't belittle. Honor your parents <laughs> by being yourself and all of yourself, living fully and unapologetically. Comfort when needed and cause discomfort when required. Care for and about yourself. Care for your friends and your family. Care for our community. You are leaving home to join the greatest of odysseys, taking off on a magical and mysterious adventure. You are on the precipice where so many men before you stood. Jump. Jump as high and as far and as wide as you can. Daddy Jordan and I are here watching with utter wonder. Oh, yes. Can we, what, what did we want to we, So, it, oh, thank you. There, so that's what I wanted. thought it would be fun okay. if everybody stood up with their book and we took a picture. I was telling Richie yesterday he has to document this because it all happens so quickly. You don't have a password on your phone. No, don't. <laughs> I'm going to, uh, where is the, okay. There you go. Everybody ready? Oh, look at you're beautiful. Oh, this works. Wait, we're going to do horizontal so we can get everybody. Amazing. Beautiful. Should we leave room so we can see? Wow. We got everybody. Yay. Is everybody smiling? Great. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92y.org archives.